Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi guys, I'm Max and this is Flip Your Wig. A space to celebrate some of the freshest talent in film and music. People that are going against the grain, they're being fearless, they're being unapologetic in the way they share their art with the world. Hey, this is Flip Your Weird with Max. All about creative people that never give up till they reach success and desire some true happiness. And we all need to just, like, love and support each other, and that's what I think this new generation of artists is doing. What's up? Flipping our weird with Max. Entertainers, you know, but I think narratives drive uh, imagination in people, so that's why you know films will always exist. I want to start by sending positive vibes and lots of good health wishes to every single person out there right now listening. COVID-19 has quite literally turned the world upside down and I know we've all been up and down with our emotions. I've been feeling one day like crap and then the next day feeling inspired. But it's also been a time of self-reflection, which I think is pretty awesome for all of us. It's time that you can sit down and think about what you're doing, why you're doing it, who you're doing it with, who are you doing it for and are you actually enjoying it? Our plan was to have a weekly podcast, but this may be this week you may get a podcast and then you may get get one in two weeks' time. Please bear with us while we figure this all out. What I can promise you is we are going to chat to people that work in film and music that will inspire you, entertain you, um, and also motivate you. I don't know about how you feel but there's been moments where I've been a little bit like oh I need some motivation to remember why I love what I love and being creative sometimes drives you nuts because your brain is always on overload so let me tell you about our first guest we recorded the chat with this guy a week before everything kicked off Mark Jenkin made this film Babe it's a film with so much heart it's a film with a story that is so relatable and he's yeah he's broken loads of rules he's done it in black and white he's used old camera kit he shot it all himself he's just made it in a really different way but at the heart of the film it's about people so it's really about human nature how do you respect um, show care consideration are you vulnerable to other people and their stories or is it all about you your comfort and what you need to do to feel comfortable mark and i obviously didn't get to chat about covid19 because this chat was recorded just before that he's been really vocal on his social media and he's healthy and well he's in cornwall with his family so i'm really pleased to hear that so let's do it our first guest on the flippy wig podcast um, mark jenkin the first of many i hope i want to start by congratulating him this was the moment that he bagged himself a bafta award um i won't pick anybody out well i am going to pick some individuals out um because 
partly because they're here, but Ed Rowe, who was here, who, whose amazing central performance carries a lot of weight of the film. Um, Simon Shepard, whose fantastic performance, and I would never have met that wonderful man if it wasn't for this film. And Mary Woodvine, who, I'm going to cry, is also my partner and is brilliant in the film, as she is in life. But, and also, just to say th um, thanks to the BFI, who, who a BFI distribution... <laughs> who decided that a black-and-white 16mm hand-processed post-synced film in Academy Ratio about Cornish fisher, <laughs> fishing people was uh, a commercial proposition. <laughs> Thank you. Miraz, as we say in Cornwall. Cheers. Did you have any idea that you were going to win? Because I've been told that a lot of people know in advance. Did you? No. No, didn't, didn't have a clue. You know, we, we were up for two BAFTAs, so we were up for Best British Film, which I thought there was n absolutely no chance we could win, and that was really one of those situations where just being nominated is enough. That category was insane. Yeah, and it was the first one that they awarded on the night, so the whole thing started very quickly, and they just announced that, and we didn't win it, and I didn't expect to win it, but I think a few people who knew that we were up for the BAFTAs were thinking that was the one that you know, the only one we were up for. Mm. So I, I think, I, I, was, I was sort of thinking, oh, shit, everybody at home's going to think, oh, that's, mm. that's it, it's all over. Oh, well, and then they're going to go to the pub and say, let's not watch yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I always, you know, the one that we did have a chance with was the, was the debut one. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, 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 I'm an incredibly superstitious person anyway. I don't, I try not to think about things like that. You get in there and you're, given, you're, you're shown where you, you're seated and stuff, and then you think, oh, look, right down the front by the steps they're nominated as well they're probably there because they can get up there quicker oh God, you're like me you actually were thinking it through yeah. we're over here we're not gonna win yeah <laughs> but then it and and i've never prepared anything ever but i thought because it was i actually watched a bit of the year before's baftas on tv and just realized how big a deal it was mm. and thought actually i am going to write a speech just in case, just so I don't have to think about what I'm going to say. So I wrote it in my head, and then when I got to the hotel that afternoon, I thought, I'm going to write it down, and not to have with me necessarily, but just to write it down so the act of writing it down would make me remember it. And yeah. so I wrote it down, and I read it back, and it was nine and a half minutes long. <laughs> well, you were going to be wrapped up. That was never going to <laughs> yeah, happen. Yeah, and then when we got in there, the warm-up guy said, you know, you've got a minute or 90 seconds or whatever it was, so... I thought, well, that's, you know... I, I, even at the hotel, I just sort of threw the piece of paper away. I thought, that's absolutely pointless. But I watched back the TV um, footage, and I do... I noticed when I watched it, I do put my hand in my pocket as if I'm going to pull out a speech and, and then don't take <laughs> anything out of my pocket. <laughs> yeah. So I think that was like a comfort thing. But that moment, though, I think it was... For everybody that supports independent films, and especially great independent British films, I think we all celebrated it for you. And I don't know if you felt that sense from the social media amount of love you got from all of us? A, a little bit, yeah. I mean, it's difficult because, um, for me, it's just been absolutely crazy because I've been in the middle of all of it, so it's very difficult to tell if it's as big a thing as it is for me and for everybody connected with the film. And obviously it's not as big a thing for everybody else, but I've, I've been told so many times about what a big thing this mm. the film breaking out in the way it has when we when we premiered it in berlin in february we had all of the the great reviews came in everything was positive we we'd come from nowhere really with it and it was there was so much positivity and it was really overwhelming and then i read one tweet 
from just some guy, some German guy who just, you know, I didn't know. And, you know, judging by his Twitter profile, nobody really knew him. He didn't really know many people, but he just put this tweet out into the world talking about bait. And that was the one that made me just, it totally floored me reading this message from a... What did he say? He just said, you know, if you're in Berlin for the Berlin Berlinale and, and you go and see one film, go and see this film. And I just thought, God, that person's stopped and written that mm. and, you know, and... And, that's, and that was the beginning of me realising how word of mouth starts. You've been clamped? I think so, yeah. Who done that? Who do you think? Pricks. You own the bloody street. You can't just park there all day. It's fine you picking stuff up and dropping stuff I work off. in the arbour, I'm a bloody fisherman. Are you? Where's your boat? It's kind of inspiring to think that you did something against the grain and you didn't look for the attention and the success, but it came afterwards. And I think that's a bit that I would love us to talk about today, like where that came from. Yeah. You started, like most people here, as a film student. Mm-hmm. What was it about film that you just thought, this is what I want to do? I was talking to somebody about this the other day who I, who I met, at the, uh, well, I met her before, but I met her again at the, at the weekend. She's an archaeologist. And I was telling her, I said, oh, I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was growing up I wanted to either be an archaeologist or a stump man <laughs> so different and then I realized that actually it was just that I liked Indiana Jones and that sort of covered the two things and I thought actually maybe I should just maybe making films is the thing to do and then I saw a film um, when I was about 17 or 18 The Garden by Derek Jarman and that was the first film that I watched that I really understood that there was somebody behind the camera making the film yeah. whereas all the films that I grew up watching I never once wondered who the director was or who'd written it or why they'd written it or what they were trying to say or anything like that. And the whole point of those films was that the, f- the filmmaking process is hidden. Mm-hmm. You know, as soon as you start seeing the, the filmmaking process in one of those films, the film isn't working anymore. But with, with watching Derek Jarman's The Garden, you know, he's in, the director is in the film. And that sort of blew my mind. could do that it, it, it sort of just turned the camera around and went look how easy this is you know wow. it is not easy but yeah. it's <laughs> but it is easy to pick up a camera and start filming stuff and now we don't even think about it because everybody mm. but it's different uh, the phone is different yeah. like you know i know our generation like everyone here my has an iphone different. oh my god geez hold up pull that back out like what century is that phone from nokia Oh, my God. Hold up. Can you get email or anything on that? No. That's why why, um, my replies to you are quite slow. (laughs) I can't believe you have an Instagram. Somebody must have made you have an Instagram. I've got an iPad, but that... I can only op- I can only use it when yeah. I've got Wi-Fi, which is why I'm I'm sort of out of contact a, a lot of the time. I think it's a good thing, though. I guess it means that you're in your own mind and you're able to explore your own thoughts without being influenced too much by what the industry and what people say you should do. I never went into in into the industry. I went I left film school and then I went and just worked on building sites because that's what I'd done while I was studying. Okay. So I didn't 
I didn't know whether I was going to go to university before I went, and I was sort of in the on the dole in North Cornwall, and then I did go to university. And then while I was at university, I worked with people that I met up there on doing yeah. labouring on on building sites, sort of when I could. And then yeah, and then I went and worked for this, and I went and worked on building sites when I finished university. And most of the people I worked with sort of went to London mm. and and got into the industry and I didn't I just stayed working because I didn't really want to do that and then then the winter came around and I decided that I would go to London and I and people Does the season have anything to do with that? I love the winter came along and then I thought I'll go to well, London I was in Bournemouth and so working on the on the seafront on a yeah, building site had such fun and then the weather changed and I was like oh this isn't so good anymore I was going to work in the dark and coming home in the dark and I thought I'd done three years of studying yeah and actually I could go and do it a job that I'm not 100% into, but I would get paid more for it mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be freezing and knackered all the time. So I did go to London. It was only about nine months after I'd graduated. Okay. I went to London and somebody said, oh, you just got to go around knocking on doors. And so I literally went around knocking on doors. And one of the first doors I knocked on was an edit house on Dean Street. And it was Sam Sneed editing. And there was just two editors, Sam Sneed and his other, and the other editor who worked there. And the receptionist said, oh, yeah, come up. We need a runner for a few days because our in-house runner is off okay. sick. So I went, lucky. yeah, it was very lucky. So I went and I, had, and I just turned up from Cornwall. I had my bag with me. Like today? <laughs> I was wearing a suit. Nice. Oh, guys, tips, suits, hello. <laughs> and I went in and, um, yeah, and they must have just wondered where I'd just arrived from. But, and, I went, and I went in and... Um, and they said, right, the director's in there with the edit- editor. Go, and it's the first thing in the morning. He said, right, go over to Bruno's on Wardle Street. Get, get him his breakfast. Right. So I went over there, came back with this, like, sausage and egg roll or whatever it was. And mm-hmm. they said, go into the edit suite, take, put it on a plate, take it in and, and give it to the director. So I went in, went into the edit suite, put the food down in front of the director and then just pulled up a chair and sat at the editing desk with the editor and the director. I love it. You didn't leave. You just thought, OK, I'm staying caught. <laughs> yeah, I thought, I work, you know, if I'm working here, I, you know, they'll probably let me edit, yeah. is what I was thinking. And then the receptionist appeared at the door and said, Get out. come back out. <laughs> and that turned out to be, I don't know if you remember it, but the Guinness Surfer ad. Yeah. Okay. The John, so it was Jonathan Glazer was the okay. director. He waits. That's what he does. And they'll tell you what. Tick followed talk followed tick followed talk followed tick. I went and worked for an, in an animation department as a runner. There was a BBC series called Walking with Dinosaurs. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that would have been the late 90s, early 2000s. And I used to, my job was to stand by the door all day and let the BBC producers come in when they turned up to have a look at the animation. Okay. And in the end, I, it is classic story, there was a, like a big stationary cupboard and I used to sit in the stationary cupboard. Um, and it did have windows and everything. It wasn't like a wardrobe that I climbed into. But it, and it had a desk. And the IT department was on the same floor. And this guy who was in IT said to me, do you want a computer in there? And I just said, yeah, great. And then and the photocopier was already in that room. And he gave me a phone line, a computer, and a printer. And there was a photocopier. And I wrote my first screenplay, which was me just being homesick for North Cornwall. And I wrote it about me and my mates. Booked 
two weeks holiday, went back to Cornwall. This was summer of 1999 and made a film on a mini DV camera. I borrowed a thousand pounds and borrowed and, and hired it for a thousand pounds for two weeks. And you were bawling. Like, who would have given you a thousand pounds? My girlfriend at the time, I think, lent it to me. <laughs> okay, hustler. <laughs> yeah, and then I went and shot this film, came back. Nobody, and I was just a runner, nobody knew who I was, but I'd come back with 20. 22 tapes, 21 tapes of footage to make this film out of, and then I, and then I started using the edit suite, one of the edit suites of the company, to make the film. And after a year of doing that, people realised that I was no longer letting the producers in through the door anymore, and I got fired. Oh God! But I carried on using the editing equipment so for a little while. I carried on using my pass going in in the evenings. Well, that's exactly, that's exactly what I did do. I've just realised that this has yeah. been recorded. Um, <laughs> this may or may not be true, but I did carry on editing the mm. film until one day I went in and the whole thing had been wiped. Oh, God. But that's really interesting because you say it in such a light, like, matter-of-fact way, but how many of us would do that at that age, at the start of their career, by yourself, to be that focused and that passionate and determined... Where did that come from? I don't know. I mean, bait was made in exactly the same way, in, a, in a different circumstances, but it was, it was exactly the same thing of making something that nobody really knew we were doing. It had a really great supportive producers who managed to raise the budget very quickly, privately, without any sort of outside artistic interference. I got, where I am in Cornwall, there's such a strong community of creative people who have, are all self-sufficient, have all learned how to do it themselves, we know we're sort of at least 150, maybe 300 miles away from where the experts are supposed to be, but you kind of develop your own expertise and, and we all sort of learn how to do stuff um, away from the mainstream. Was there somebody in your life, a parent, a family member, a mate, somebody that was almost like a mentor, somebody that when you did doubt what you were trying to do, say no Mark you got this keep doing because it's difficult to stay focused and to have that sort of mindset um, yeah I've never had much doubt about what I'm doing because I don't feel any responsibility to anybody else while doing it mm -hmm. so I've always thought I make films for an audience of one which is me <laughs> that's so self-indulgent I make a what did you say say that again I make a film for I'm an audience of one <laughs> yeah which, which is me because when you're making a film there is no other audience yeah the audience comes along afterwards but so people tell you like there's always this thing because even as a presenter you get told think about your audience what they look like who they are this is the car they drive people put all these stupid ideas into your yeah. mind does that does that never get fed to you? Yeah, people try and tell me that from time to time, but I, d I just don't believe it because I, I can't make stuff for other people because I just get I lose interest and it takes so much energy to make a film that I have to be absolutely interested in every single aspect. That's why I get involved in all aspects of it because I love all of it. If I do anything that starts to compromise my passion for it the energy levels dip mm -hmm. and it just won't happen so it's got to be for me and for film if i like the film that i make i know that i'm not so different from the rest of humanity that there won't be an audience for it i think if i make a film that i love yeah, but i think you're quite weird and different to be fair you're not the majority <laughs> but i think everybody's i think everybody's weird and different way. they've just got to be yeah you've just got you've just got to tell people it's all right to be weird Yay. and different so you put something you put some work in front of them that's mm. a bit odd but and uh, not necessarily my film but anything and people go actually i like that and you should mm. go 
well, it's fine because it was made by another human. Mm. So mm. you should like, you know, you don't, you don't have to like it, but you shouldn't automatically dislike it because it's different. Yeah, no, I agree. And Weird I think, and wonderful. Yeah, and people sometimes people are too scared to sort of say they like stuff because they have to check. You know, they have to go they, in their heart. They go, I really like this, but I'm just going to check that yeah. it's all right to like it. Losing your temper isn't going to help. I haven't lost my temper yet. Your old man wouldn't have shut the pub in the winter. Bloody disgrace you are. Sell it! Get out! This is Flip Your Wig. I'm Max. I hope you're enjoying the show. Right, our special guest is Mark Jenkin. Some of the Flip Your Wig gang are here as well with me. Lauren, you've got a question, right? I know you say you make films for you, but, like, did you have any influences when making the film? Because it does remind me a lot of, like, you know, French film, New Wave, even ending on, like, the freeze frame, like you did. That's very, like, 400 blows, Truffaut, that kind of thing. So did that really, like, influence you or, like, impact the way that you made the film? Yeah, it's a great question, yeah, and... I think to to a certain extent, um, the, the freeze frame is interesting because I think you're the very first person who's mentioned yeah. 400 blows. I, I think certainly the first time you know, I, I, it, it may have been written about before, but I haven't. It does. I can't yeah, think of. Yeah, it's you. It's you. Um, and I don't. I didn't think right. I'm gonna have a freeze frame in like homage to. 400 blows but I think when I decided I wanted a freeze frame freeze frame I thought is that too cliched is it too hokey and then I just thought well Truffaut did it so it's fine yeah (laughs) so I think it was kind of the other way around um in terms of influence it's it's difficult because because I do so many Q&A's about the film and so many people tell me or ask me about influences. I've got to the point where I can't remember which were influences or the ones that I now think were influences because people have told me they were influences. And I think the truth is that I think I'm influenced by everything. And you can't really do anything new. All you can do is combine things that already exist in different ways. So there's bits of everything in the film. Okay, so um, I know that you're currently writing, is it a dissertation? So one thing I was thinking of um, when I was watching it is obviously you touch a lot on like issues such as social class and gentrification and typically they're not always super well received by film critics because you're criticising their lifestyle choices because they're predominantly like middle class. Yay, well said! (laughs) So were you surprised with how well the film did in that respect that it was so well received and do you wonder whether it was because you're doing it from the perspective of like minority, like Cornish fishermen? Um, Your face? Yes. <laughs> He's like going to be careful now. Critics love Mark. <laughs> Does he love them? Well, well I, I think, I think hope, I mean, who knows? Who knows what the reasons behind the, the, um, the positive response from critics is. Um, I think partly it's because it's, the film is different and that, you know, form, formally. Um, so that's a good way of opening the door to to sort of critical, uh, positive critical responses. It's also a way of, you know, risking negative responses as well. Um, but in terms of subject matter, I, I think, well, I hope it's that it's because what the message of the film isn't black and white and that the actual, the there's ambiguity in the grey areas of it. And actually, you know, the more, uh, 
maybe the more progressive people within the film, if you think of politically, um, are probably the second homeowners who've moved in. But they're not necessarily the people you should be, that I'm encouraging you to side with. And maybe the less progressive are the, are the local people. You know, I'm, t- I'm not talking progressive, I'm talking progressive in terms of, like, political, you know... I thought your female lead was a really important character. Yeah, and it was really key that she that she went from being male to female. Why was that? Well, I mean, and I should give credit to Kate Byers, who's one of the producers on the film, who suggested to me how... Because the character was a boy called Bofty originally, and she said to me, she said, how about Bofty being a girl? And, and I just thought, yeah, that's... That's genius. It's brilliant because it, I, I just I knew what the ending was going to be with the three of them on the boat, and to have the future of the film being this this rock solid young person who just spoke truth throughout the film. Everybody's got everybody's performing to a certain extent, except for her, who on the surface seems to be performing more than everybody else. But actually, every word she says is just what she thinks. I'll have a shot. No. Go on, I'm playing next anyway. There's money down, squirt. Don't matter, it's winner stays on. No, it isn't. It is. Partner thing? No. Go away. And, oh, and going back to the gentrification thing, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, coming down here, I, I got on the, the DLR, and oh, I mean, that's brilliant, isn't it? Coming through here. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I've just been on the tube where you've yeah, just yeah. in a black tunnel for ages, then you get on that and you look around and think, this place is just mm. insane the way this has just gone, you know, and. Yeah. And you think this is the, this is the docks, or you know came yeah, down through yeah. all the docklands area. And you think this is where the proper working class, the people, mm. the the sort of the people whose the riches of London and the UK was built on the labour of these people who who are now gone, you know, and their families, their descendants aren't here anymore. God knows where they've scattered to. Where you know yeah. where are where the London working class is. Those, those strong communities. Where do they live now? So it's sort of on the way here. I was thinking about gentrification in Cornwall. It, it's in in a way. I was talking to a producer actually a little a little while ago. He's a London producer who's doing a study of gentrification in the east of London. Mm-hmm. And I said, "What? How do you record where these communities go? Because they break up and they just disappear and they go. And, and and that's it. In Cornwall, a lot of what happens is around these fishing communities is gradually local people move up the hill into the estate, and all of the pretty houses round the harbour become, yeah, become bought up." And it's not any, and so you can kind of trace where the local people go because they go a mile up the hill and they stay together. Because once a few go, everybody goes, well, actually, all my mates live up the hill now and the rest of my family live up the hill. Let's move up the hill. And suddenly, within a generation, that community's gone up the hill. But people make, do, do those people do make a money out of selling the houses as well yeah. you know not all of them and and mm. and that's the, hopefully that's the ambiguity at the beginning of the film where martin the fisherman says to santa a second homeowner she says to him you didn't have to sell us this house and he says didn't we mm. you know and and the question what the question i wanted to ask her was yeah did did he or didn't he have to sell the house and you think what the situation was two brothers who'd inherited this house when their parents had died yeah. what were they going to do to be independent of each other but that's why and I think who do they sell the house to? But I think that's why it's universal because, like, I have family in, in Barbados and we, I've been going for years and I couldn't help but think about the Americans and the British that buy all the land and build these beautiful houses and come during summer season and the rest of the time, the locals, a lot of them are living in, like, shacks yeah. and they're seeing these empty, huge houses, land that they once owned yeah. and people aren't even living there full-time. They're literally holiday homes. When I was in New York for the American premiere... Um, 
a, wo a woman came up to me at the end of the screening and she said to me, she was a New Yorker, but she said, said to me, um, you know, thank you for making this film. She said, this film was about my dad. And I said, all oh, right. She said, yeah, he was a fisherman in Barbados all of his life. See you on the beach. I'm telling mum you're hanging around with him. You live in this community. Oh, the community. You've got a new film coming soon. It's a horror, which is completely different to what you've done. Tell me about where your head was thinking about this next film. Well, I made, the film I made before Bait was a 45-minute film called Bronco's House, mm -hmm. which is very similar in form to Bait, and it's about the housing crisis in West Cornwall. And it's, it's shot and edited like a thriller. But it's, almost, it's got elements of horror in it. Mm -hmm. you know, not that I noticed, but people have said to me, it feels like a horror film. doesn't make a home. That's nice, but I don't actually know where I'll be staying tonight. Don't want charity. Where are we going to live, Bronco? And other people uh, have watched Bait and told me, you know, there's elements of it that feel like a horror film. There's a sense of foreboding that something's going to happen that's kind of out of everybody's control. There's not like an antagonist who's going to create hell. There's sort of, like, it just feels like the place is kind of going to turn on these people. And people kept mentioning horror for these two films. So I thought, right, I'm going to write a horror film. I love watching horror films. Most of them, I've, I always think most horror films are ultimately crap. <laughs> but but almost all horror films have got something interesting in yeah. them. It's where, because it, it's a real move, it's a real cineast genre, mm. and people who make horror films love horror films and know everything about horror films. And I'm not somebody who's quite like that. I'm trying to teach myself. But yeah. and they and they, but it's always the third act. You know, you build up this sense of horror and foreboding, and mm. and the logic doesn't quite work, and it's really unsettling. And then in the third act, you have to tie everything up, and you go, ah, oh, it was, you know, it was that. And I, 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 I don't like that. So I'd always had an idea that I'd like to make a horror film where it has got that third act where everything's explained, but I don't shoot that third act. So the film ends at the end of the second act where everybody oh. goes, oh, hello, because I love. <laughs> Equal. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I love, um, you know, I love David Lynch. The film kind of, or the filmmaker picks up the audience, leads them into the, the woods, the scary forest, into the darkest corner, scares the life out of them, and then safely leads them back out again. But that's what somebody like David Lynch does is exactly that, leads them into the darkest corner of the forest and then just fucks off <laughs> and you're left there Bye. with no logic and try and you spend the rest of your life trying to find your way out yeah. of that and so Ooh, this sounds like it's going to be so good i'm like excited <laughs> well I, and so i thought i'm gonna i'm gonna write this horror film so i wrote it i had this idea for it i wrote it and then i read it back i thought there's no horror in this and it's and I, but i realized the horror for me is in the form so it's in the film it's an untrustworthy film form so the whole film is about one woman alone on an island for it's set in 1973 and she's alone on this island for a winter into the spring and it's an uninhabited island that used to have a tin mine on it and in the contaminated soil around the mine this very rare flower grows and she's a volunteer for a wildlife trust who's monitoring this flower on the island through the winter and into the 
spring. And the only other thing on the island at the highest point is a standing stone, a Neolithic standing stone that looks down at her cottage. And during the film, the standing stone begins to move down the hill towards her cottage. But it's all about... And she's whether these sort of energy lines, these ley lines, cross. And also, in, and one afternoon while she's just having a cup of tea, looking out the window, the the crew of a lifeboat that was lost off the island in 1896, the crew of the lifeboat suddenly just appear outside her window and stuff. So all these timelines start messing. So yeah, the horrors in the in the form rather than in the rather than there's no jump scares or anything. It's just this sense that you don't really know. But it's weird and it's going to, like, freak us out. Yeah. It's going to make our mind think, what the hell is going on? Uh, hopefully it'll unnerve people. Good. Have yeah. you watched um, Midsummer by Ari Aster? I did, yeah. Did that not mess up your mind? Yeah, to a certain extent, but again, it was the third act. If I'd... If I'd um... Sorry, that ending? No, that wasn't, like, happy ever after. No, no, it wasn't. Come on, that it was, like, sick. I always like to... I, want, I really want to watch the director's cut. I saw the, I saw the theatrical cut. I'd like yeah. to see the director's cut. Um... But I, I watched... Um, Jordan Peele's Us. What did you think of that? I haven't seen Us yet. Okay, you need to see that as well. I watched... Um, I've seen The Light... Sorry, Chuck, a new horror. The Lighthouse. Yeah. Because I, I introduced that at the BFI the other, the other day. And name drop. I was chatting to Robert Eggers beforehand <laughs> about it. And, uh, and I, I think he, what he does is quite similar to what I'm interested in. Is you, set, you actually, if you try and work out the logic of it all, mm. it doesn't work. And that's the thing of not having a third act where you explain the logic. It's actually don't try and put this together to make sense of time and space because it won't stand up. You've just got to experience it as a, as a visceral experience. What, I think you're going to get known for that then, aren't you? Because you're literally, when you watch Bait, it is like, well, this man lives by his own rules and he's done everything that nobody else is brave enough to do. Well, that, um, yeah, but the problem I've got at the moment is I did that and, you know, I, I would never say this to anybody I worked with, but I did that thinking maybe nobody will ever see this film. Mm. You know, making it for the audience of one. Right. Maybe it would end up with a box office of one. No, so, I, no. so I can make it without anybody looking at me. And, and now, you know, with, with this new film, there are going to be people... So how do you... Be waiting for this How film. do you protect that, I guess, um, natural innocence in being able to do what you want, the way you want, without worrying about the world? Because you're right, you're a BAFTA winner now. You know, we all know who you are. You're out here and everyone's like, come on, we want to see his next film. So how do you manage to keep that authentic you? By working with the same group of collaborators mm-hmm. who, who, who I know very well and they know me very well and they... Um, we, uh, I was going to say we keep each other ground, grounded. They don't need grounding, you know. They're just hardworking, creative people. But they, they will, uh, they give me the same as what they gave me last time when making the film. And I, you know, and I, uh, and, and that's sort of reciprocated. If you know what I mean, it's just like a, a team of people who, you know, they uh, they worked with me the film before Bait, mm-hmm. which was just a forty-five minute film that very few people saw. They made Bait when Bait wasn't a film that won a BAFTA, so there's no expectations from them. They're just people who are really committed to the project and working collaboratively in that way. You said earlier that you cast, you did the casting thing this time round, but you still ended up using the same cast that you had with Bait. Um, Why was that? I I felt it was necessary to consider other options. You know, I was getting contacted by a lot of people. Um, You know, I've... it's at the moment, certainly, I mean, this may change, but at the moment it's quite, it's possible for me to get meetings with people. Yeah. Um, 
And so we could have really cast the film with with names, mm-hmm. but we really we're, we're working on a very small budget again. It's a very small film. It's very similar to Bait, really. So we don't have the capacity to necessarily accommodate people who are bigger stars. But the but the main reason is it's a film that was written with people in mind, which is what I've and I kind of been around the houses a little bit, but I always follow my gut instinct. And I'm and and as time moved on, I thought actually no, it should be these people. You know. How do you balance that and allow yourself to take advantage of the new opportunities but still, I guess, in essence, keep the identity that obviously listening to you talking about Cornwall, talking about why you make film is super important to you? Yeah, well, there's, there is a temptation. You know, I've been offered bigger, a couple of bigger films since that, that I just know I'm not ready for, you know. If I, that I've been offered a... a quite a big a big film to consider you know there's no deal on the table but I was offered a chance to consider mm-hmm. a bigger film and I thought if I make this film it'll be shit <laughs> because I can't I'm not I'm not able to work in that way I do what I do very specific way of working I do it and I think I and that's my strength it's not necessarily transferable where I can just be lifted out as a jobbing director and put into a big crew with established people because I think you know I, I don't know just I need to be hands-on with a lot of what I'm doing but um, as a awesome director there's going to be people that want that in their film mm-hmm. the eye the way you shoot the way you think would you never consider like I guess the big budget even having the creative control if somebody said we want you to direct this this is the script do you like it you can change it and do what you want have you thought about it in that way um mark kermode said to me you do realize you're going to get offered a star wars film now don't you? <laughs> and oh I, my god the last one was like Ugh. and i said to him and i i you know i realized he was joking but he was basically saying that you know people are gonna want to work with you because you've done something different yeah. but then what they'll what they the, the danger is they'll want you to do something different as long as it's exactly the same as everything else you know there, there's just a slight change in terms of the perspective of of looking at something you know this new per, this person's come along who's done something very different maybe we can just incorporate mm-hmm. a tiny bit of different of that difference into what we're doing mm-hmm. but it's it's not it, it's it's either one thing or the other so yeah i mean you know if i got off the star wars film it'd be fine yeah but i want to shoot it on my Bolex, it will be black and white. I get to rewrite the script, do the, do the music, and it'll all be shot silently in post synced. Oh my god, that's the thing. You're totally con- in control and of. I would probably say no, and so oh, I. Oh, you and, 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 and that would be my point. It would say, well, you can't do it, mm. but it has to be done in my way. Else, it would be crazy for you to ask me to do it because I would. It would be so bad. Evening, Mrs. Peters. Evening, Martin. Lovely day. Paul and Silas bound in jail Got no money for their pay You keep your eyes on the prize And you roll right on Yo, what's on? Nothing much Get him, Manny? Not enough Paul and Silas thought they were lost Why don't you just go back working with Stephen for a bit? I got bloody principles 
Hi, I'm Max, and you guys are checking out our brand new podcast, Flip Your Wig. Feel free to subscribe if you want to get some daily updates and reviews, recommendations, interviews with like talent that we're into in film and music. Go to flipyourwig.net. More info also in the show note. Right, so we are hanging with Mark Jenkins for our first episode, and some of the Flip Your Wig team are also here. One of our main writers, Adrian. I know you've got a question, right? Fire away. I guess the the important thing when you write something is to not miss that window of opportunity when that project is relevant um, because the scary part for not just writers I guess but anyone working on a film is when you write something that's like not just like okay let's say brilliant or maybe at least quite decent you know what if you what if it ends up in a shelf and then the moment for that film is gone. I mean, do you think that at that point you should let go of that, even if it's um, something that you feel really strongly about? Maybe it's your passion project? Or do you think that thinking of the like relevance and the, the right time for something is not the right way to go on about that and that you should actually just pursue that no matter what? Bay, didn't you sit on that for ages? Yeah, well, yeah exactly. I mean, Bay was... Um I came up with the idea for Bait when I was back in Cornwall in, nine, in August 1999, making the film about my mates that I went home to make. And it, it almost got green lit um, in about 2008, and then it didn't at the last minute. And then it went back, and so it was on the shelf before then, then it came out, and then it almost got green lit, and then it got put back on the shelf, and then, and then and then we went to and, and then we decided we were going to make it again and I had new producers and they raised the money very quickly and we made it but then from the moment we decided to make it to the point where it kind of came out that was another 18 months two years wow. so who knows what's going to happen actually what we were really lucky with is the whole sort of Brexit thing kicked off and so people when they saw the film in Berlin went oh this is the first Brexit film and we kind of you know how, you can't plan that um so it goes back to my comment about you just got to do it for yourself because writing a screenplay is a nightmare, you know, in terms of the amount of work it takes. So if you're, you've got to be 100% into what you're writing. Film was something that you just said out loud in the moment, straight to an audience in that moment, then you should worry about trends because you'd go, right, I'm going to say this now because this is what everybody's talking about. But if you're paying attention to what everybody's sort of, what's, on trend or in fashion at that moment it's going to take from the moment you start writing to the moment an audience sees that film it's probably going to be three, at least three years and the world will have changed so you've got to, you've got to ignore it you've got to ignore fashion what other films are, are being successful you know you can see you've probably, it's probably happening now what you know what, whatever I mean like you know say Midsummer. Mm-hmm. there's probably loads of people making sort of these folk horror films at the mm-hmm. moment right Desperately writing them. Did really well. We need to jump on this yeah. wave. Not because they're interested in it. If you're in, if if people are interested in it, then yeah, sure, do that. But if they're going, oh, Midsummer was great. I'm going to write this script. Mm-hmm. Three years later, they're still getting script notes from their producers and stuff. Then it goes into production. Two years later, it comes out, and actually by then the world's moved on. Or like with Bay, it takes so long to get it made the actual thing that I was interested at the time because it was current which was this thing within Cornwall where locals were beginning to get disgruntled and speak out about what was happening in terms of gentrification 20 years later by the time 
it got made, suddenly everybody's talking about gentrification. When I wrote it originally about Cornwall, I'd, I'd, I'd never heard of the word gentrification. Mm. It, what, you know, what a brilliant word. So I was trying to write down something really abstract. And if I'd heard the word gentrification, I probably never would have written the script because I could have just gone, well, this is gentrification. But I couldn't work out what it was, what, what was going on within Cornwall. And I wrote a script that was so specific to the bit of Cornwall that I lived in at the time that I thought other people in Cornwall wouldn't even understand it. And then 20 years later, I stuck at it because I became obsessed with this idea. And it just so happened that in 20 years' time, when the film actually got made, we'd, it, that thing had either come back round or it had been growing and growing and growing. So I can go to New York, show the film, and have a woman whose family come from Barbados come up and say, you've made a film about my dad. I didn't make a film about a fisherman in Barbados when I was sat in North Cornwall 20 years before writing this script. I was writing that script because I passionately believed in it. So. I think what you've done with Bait, though, I think that's why it's super important because these conversations now, people are feeling like, hold up, maybe what I'm doing, there may be a space for it because Mark's done it and mm. everyone's got on it. And I think it's, it's so very important. I don't think you even probably realise the power of Bait for like the next generation of filmmakers because everyone I talk to and I say, you feel disillusioned, go and watch this film and then come and talk to me. And then they're like, oh shit, what, people are actually watching this? What, it's, been, it's won awards? That's necessary because otherwise everybody thinks there isn't a point of difference. We cannot do something different because there is not an audience for it. Well, yeah, and I think that the, when I stand back and have a look at it, it I, I think, wow, this is really easy. You know, I've gone from, no, from nobody knowing about this film and nobody knowing about anybody in the film or knowing about me to the film winning a BAFTA. Yeah. It was so easy. All, you had, all I had to do was, you know, work with this brilliant team and make a film that we all passionately believed in. And that happens. The truth is it doesn't because there's plenty of films that are made like that mm-hmm. that don't get seen. And it's sort of heartbreaking to think the amount of brilliant films as an audience member the amount of brilliant films we're missing right now because we didn't they didn't have the luck and timing that we had with bait but so it's not guaranteed that if you do what we did you'll have a success mm-hmm. but if you I, I just think if you don't do what we did which was stick to your guns and make something that you believed in with passion there's no way that you can get what bait has got. I often hear this from people in creative industries like music and film that if you don't have, I know people say your vibe attracts your tribe but sometimes you're like where the hell is my tribe if you don't have one or two people around you that literally are your ride or dies and believe in what you're doing and support it, in your case you're so lucky your other half, your friend circle, you're all working together, I think the journey is so much tougher doing it by yourself because you're literally, the, the times you're down you've got no one to lift you up mm-hmm. And how crucial have that team been, whether it was your other half who's an actress, whether it is the people that are producing and co-starring? I mean, how important is that circle to what you're doing and where you are? Well, it's just essential. You know, with the new film, um, the producer I'm working with, who's a a friend of mine, he produced the film before Bait, Mm -hmm. Bronco's House. And we had a meeting, we were talking about crew and stuff. I said, I'll go away and, you know, I'll I'll put down a list of roles that I think we need for this film because we don't necessarily work in totally traditional roles. Like, we don't have a sound department, for example. So, uh, and our art department's really key, but we don't have budgets to have a big art department. So we have very, uh, very um, multi-talented people. And as I wrote down the names, like my lighting cameraman, my production designer, my first AD, all of these people, and I wrote these... And it's like, why am I writing this down? There's no discussion. Because the role isn't important. It's these people that are important. It doesn't matter what 
title they've got, I know that I have to have, and I won't name them now, but I have to have so-and-so. Mm. I, and I know I can't make this film without that person because that person, one, has got a unique skill set based on the, the way they've developed as a mm -hmm. technician or an, an, an artist or both. But also they've got a way of working with me that if I have to work with somebody new at that point, we're probably going to have to put two more days onto the shoot because we're not going to work at the same speed. The AD, I will mention one person, Callum Mitchell, who's the AD who I work with, who's a filmmaker in his own right. He doesn't AD for anybody else, mm -hmm. and he isn't really technically an AD for me. He's somebody who's always with me, who I'm always chatting to, and he's, you know, and he'll have a little word in my ear about something. And, you know, it's, and, and sometimes it's kind of... Because of the way the film's been made and because it's unconventional to a certain extent, a lot of what's been written about the film is about me... And I have to be really careful to think, oh, yeah, I made that. I, you know, I didn't. I made it with, you know, my talent, and I think this is the same for, for most directors, is surrounding themselves with the appropriate people. That's my biggest skill, mm -hmm. is knowing that I can't make this film without Callum. I can't make this film without so-and-so. I can't make this film without so-and-so. And that comes down to the casting, why... Mary Woodvine, who's my partner, who's in bait. I can only make this film with her, not because, uh, you know, because I've kind of written it for her and I have this understanding with her as an actor and I know what she can do and I know how brilliant she is. And if, if I was working with somebody else, I wouldn't be able to make this film with somebody else. First thing, because, you know, we always say we haven't got money, haven't got kit, haven't got resources. You've got your family, friends. Smoke and you made it happen. Joe over there, what would you like to ask Mark about? Because I remember you were like so thrilled about coming today and you're out here and you're actually shooting, making films. The, the numbers came out for last year's um, British indie film industry. It halved last year. While investment from countries like America doubled, um, what do you think about that? Because, of course, we've got a fantastic um, British indie film success um, from yourself, um, but the general picture looks like it's reclining. What's your kind of thoughts on that? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Or is Bates just a good example of actually how maybe there's already a resurgence against that? Um, and the second one being, I'm thinking about filming on film. Um, it terrifies me because it seems to be expensive. The equipment seems to be terrifyingly different to like the... the nice cameras where I just tell the person to press play and they, you know it goes and it's very simple as well as all the processing and yeah sorry you're right yeah I've been too much editing <laughs> done too much editing recently I've, I've got no authority to speak on the British film industry really yeah but I can but I can only talk in terms of, so for me the British film industry is in amazing shape you know but I, I, I don't know I don't know what the outlook is really what I found and also my, my I go to the cinema to watch films but this year my cinema going has been at festivals so I've been travelling all over the world going to film festivals which are showing films you know what, what you describe as art house films with huge audiences so my year of cinema has been totally skewed I've been going off you know to watch a sort of Norwegian film you know about a minimalist Norwegian drama in a cinema of 600 people in it who all stand up and clap at the end so I'm thinking and I realise that's not British but in terms of independent cinema this year has been amazing for me I've been seeing Sorry most to cut you because we had a yeah. conversation about this earlier it's because what I think what Joe was saying and I think he's right is that we're being given this thing of oh the British industry is booming we're, we're killing it but 
if you look into it deeply, it actually isn't what it seems. And you are in the minority. Ken Loach, I quote him a lot. Legend, it was nice to talk to him. He said to me, and, he, and he, he's right, and it made me really think. He said, when was the last time you and your mates went to cinema and watched a film with all British um, accents and also British producers and writers? Look at Netflix. British films are under specialists. It's a genre. A British yeah. film is a genre. Yeah. You know, and he said, people, if it doesn't have an American accent, people don't think it's a film. Yeah. So I think it is, this is a big thing that's going on and you have changed the game in the sense that you're one of the few, very few, that has done something and made an impact. So yeah. Well, and I think that's a wider cultural thing, isn't it? Like coming down here, I got off at um, Canary Wharf mm-hmm. tube station. I walked through there. Wow. What living hell that is. Because it feels like a sanitised sort of... Like, American sort of shopping mall kind of thing so I think so yeah I just didn't I, you know my mood changed walking through and I thought do people come in here and like like live yeah and is this fun and if it is fun then have we have we lost touch with what humanity what being a human is but I think that's in it but it is this commerce you know commerce is the important thing and that's just a, that's just a, a building designed to suck money out of your pockets and I think, um, and it's a, that's a very American, Western kind of thing, you know, the the the, Ameri- the American way of looking at things. I think, um, and this isn't to do with individual American people, you know, like an American capitalist system it, it is, you know, we've got that here, you know, that is, that's the sort of all-conquering system we've got, and it brings with it certain um, things like cinema, so like a huge sort of invasion of, of Hollywood. It's kind of always been there, but I think what's become... I think what's interesting about what you're saying about Netflix and stuff and, and ghettoizing British stuff is because of the common or the so-called common language between here and America, I don't think people realise that, you know, America is just as foreign as France, you know, actually much more foreign than France. But because of the language thing, it's like, you know... These aren't foreign films. These are sort of, in in some ways, kind of British films or English films because of English language and all this kind of stuff. I mean, the big thing with a new film I was, that I'm doing now was gonna it was gonna be in Canuic, the Cornish language. Yeah. It was gonna be a Cornish language film. And actually, we we were quite determined to do that um, to start with, and that it was actually a, a, a sort of um, a story reason why we've chosen not to do it in the end. Nothing to do with a commercial reason. Just to say, you know, like this is. Yeah. Let's look at, let's celebrate small minority cultures in a really outward-looking way, not in an in, not in an inward-looking protectionist kind of way, an outward-looking way. But saying like we've got loads of different languages within the UK, and actually let's celebrate these other languages. Um, and like I say, there wasn't we didn't we decided not to do that, not for commercial reasons, for for actually artistic reasons. But yeah, I think um, yeah, I mean American culture. Uh, the sort of uh, American culture being everywhere within this country, I think, is is kind of problematic right across the board. And because it's not a real, it's not American culture. It's an exported version of American culture. It doesn't represent, doesn't even represent America, let alone the places where it gets exported to. So, so yeah, I mean, it is it is depressing to to think that by it being American is somehow a stamp of quality. Because in, in in my eyes, it's, it's it's sort of the opposite most of the time. Because I know why most American films are made. It's to make a very it's to make a small group of old men a lot of money. 
Um, but then, you know, but then we've got a British film industry that I think because it's je- because it's governed by market forces actually acts in the in the same way. Probably, but like I said, I don't really know the the ins and outs of how these industries work. But your other question was about shooting on film, which I might be more comfortable talking about. Yeah. Oh my God, you so <laughs> did not want to answer that question. Canary Wharf. Yeah, I got to be desperate if I go to Canary Wharf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you live in London, you might not realise quite what a weird place Canary Wharf is. But if, but if you've just turned, if you if you just landed here from Penzance, Canary Wharf is like a weird purgatory. Yeah, shooting on film, I would say, if you want to shoot on film, shoot on film. That's why I shoot on film. I don't understand shooting digitally. I've got nothing against it, but I don't understand. So you're you saying, you know with a camera you press play or record <laughs> yeah record yeah which is easy but i don't know what the camera's doing because there's a little computer in that camera that was programmed by somebody i don't know and i don't know what that person's intentions were so there's a little there's a there's a little interloper in the digital camera that i don't like whereas with a film camera when i take when i unload the film i take the film out i open up the prism at the front of the lens and open the shutter and I can see from the back of the camera out through the front of the camera there's nothing electronic in it at all and that's what I love about it so yeah but that's like charging up a battery you know so I I understand everything about that camera I understand and I only shoot on one camera because I just and I know that camera so well and I know that when it when I press the shutter I know the exact sound it should be making that and if the tone is slightly too high or slightly too low, I'll know that there's something slightly off with it. So it's totally, I'm completely obsessed with that camera, you can probably tell. If shooting digitally is the simple thing to do, then you should just shoot digitally. You know, I was speaking to a filmmaker the other day and he shoots everything on an iPhone and he makes the most amazing cinematic films. It's like on an iPhone, iPhone 5 filmmaker called Scott Barley amazing I mean like Kiristami said the, the four generations of filmmakers the original filmmakers or the four ages of filmmakers the first filmmakers made films based on life experience the second generation of filmmakers made films based on the first generation's films and their own life experience the third generation of filmmakers just made films based on other films they'd seen and now we're living in the fourth generation filmmakers who just make films according to um, equipment um, brochures that they read because they go, oh no, we've got a, oh we've got a, you know, we've got a 16k drone that is so small you can fly through somebody's body, you know. <laughs> oh, right, let's make, we've got to make a film on that. So the, so the tail's, the tail is wagging the dog. The technology yeah. is making you, dis, is tell, is, is you, you thinking, I've got to use that bit of equipment. What can I use it when, on? When really you should be going, what have I got to say? Mm-hmm. And then deciding the simplest way. And it's simple doesn't mean basic, but a simple meaning that you're not spending ages worrying about the technological side and neglecting the art so i think there's no rules just don't you know i I, nobody told me to shoot on film plenty of people told me i was stupid to shoot on film but because of my quite contrary personality that ensured that i definitely would shoot on film yeah but i just do it because i uh, you know i do it i work within my comfort zone i feel like you literally put cornwall on the map like in such a big way are you a celebrity at home what's it like I said to Mary on the way back, when we went back from the BAFTAs, because um, we stayed in London for a couple of days after the, BAF- after the BAFTAs do various things at the BFI and stuff, and it's when I introduced Lighthouse Screening and all that kind of stuff. And, but I was doing 
the the news back home. So I was going. I was at um, new broadcasting house, oh. doing the local news, but from in the. Not reading it, but yeah, you know. I just know. You must have loved that though. News centre. That's like your local. Do you know what I mean? And then we got we. So then we got back to Penzance, and you know, our stop is the last stop. So by the time you get to back to Penzance, there's yeah. hardly anybody on the train that pulls into the station. It looks like a, it looks just like a mini version of Paddington Station. So I was thinking Hogwarts Express. Right. So we pulled in. I said to Mary, you know, and I had the BAFTA in a in a bag, and we got off the train. I said, I said, brace yourself when we get off the train because. I said, you know when the Beatles first went to America and they got off a, that pan out thought, I said, it's going to be like Beatlemania when we got off a train and I opened the door and there was like, nobody oh. there. Which they would, you know, would, they would never be. And then, and then this one bloke walked up the platform who was there to meet his wife off the train as he walked past. He just went, well done. Oh. Uh, and it was just, that was like really nice. That, and that's what I was saying, you know, the Cornish, that's the Cornish whoop. Yeah. You know, well done. No eye contact. No eye contact. Just like, well, well done. done. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for the support. Welcome. It's like, it's been an absolute pleasure. Like, I mean, you know, I spoke to Jill when Jill said, Max has been in touch about doing yeah, something. Yeah, and we yeah. were both like, we, we've got to do it. Because it, because like you say, it's not necessarily the audience that we've had yeah. a lot of um, contact with. So I really appreciate no, the time. I, w- no, we, all of us like appreciate you taking time out. And um, I think everybody please go watch bait my thing is this watch it if you didn't like it then come talk to me because that's how sure i am that everybody that adores film is going to get something from it because there is yeah it's it touches you tell them why they should have liked it no because i haven't had one person that's come back with me and i'm i'm how real am i guys i'm like don't lie what did you think i love a good debate so if anybody came back to me and said oh shit i would be like okay explain yourself let's talk so um no one said that yet. Yeah, quite sure. <laughs> yeah. make, that isn't an invitation for people to. Yeah, like. yeah. But no, <laughs> if you think he's shit at Mark and have a conversation, <laughs> Twitter, Instagram, Mark Jenkins. I think he's got a, a squiggly underscore somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, okay, just at bait film. <laughs> yeah, Mark underscore Jenkins. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, get in contact if you don't like the film. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> be a bit more supportive martin supportive you can play in a minute yeah supportive of it come on play fair winner stays on it's not your turn he lost his wife for god's sake you've been on here ages yeah because we had money down don't work like that yes it does he's got a boy to bring up on his own i'm playing you you're not very well either you're it? not i am do you think he gives a shit how he owns his money well he fucking should do i'm warning you fuck off dickhead will you lot shut the fuck up I want to say thank you so much for supporting our first episode. I'm so excited about what's going to come. We've got our second guest booked. Fingers crossed we can record him. He's in America and we can share that with you next week. I want to say a huge thank you to my co-producer, Joseph Archer. And we will be back next week. Take care. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.